This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. In April of 1882, in Indian Territory outside of Fort Smith, Arkansas, a search party set off to find the remains of a murdered woman, and with her remains, the proof they needed to convict her killer. They came to a dark cavern, and one of the men lowered himself inside to search. A moment later, he screamed and came back up. The cavern was filled with rattlesnakes, thousands of them. None of the men were willing to go back down. Without hesitating, the lone woman in the party wrapped a rope around her waist grabbed two loaded pistols, lit a torch, and disappeared into the cavern. Every nook and cranny was filled with hissing, writhing snakes, but she didn't let it deter her. She found the body at the very bottom of the cave and brought it with her back to the surface. With the body returned, the murderer was finally arrested and hanged. Justice was served thanks to Belle Starr, the notorious fearless female outlaw. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today we're talking about Belle Star, the legendary bandit queen who made front-page news across the Wild West in the 1800s. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of Parcast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Many of you have asked how to help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. In the 1870s and 80s, when Jesse James and Billy the Kid were robbing banks and putting the wild into the West, few outlaws were as notorious as Belle Starr. Known for her sharp tongue, quick temper, and love for her two pistols, from the moment Belle's name hit newspapers, she captured the public imagination like few others could. 
She was rumored to participate in everything from horse theft to train robberies to murders. This week, we'll discuss Belle's upbringing during the Civil War, her first marriage, and her brushes with both public persecution and legal prosecution. Next week, we'll talk about her rise to fame as a notorious outlaw and what, if any, of her incredible legend might actually be true. Belle Starr was born Myra Maybell Shirley in Carthage, Missouri on February 5, 1848. Her parents were John Shirley, a successful businessman, and Eliza Hatfield of the famous feuding Hatfields and McCoys. John Shirley was the black sheep of his family, as the only child from his father's first marriage. Eliza was well-educated and well-bred, but born of the discord that has become a metonym for bitter rivalry. It's no wonder, then, that their daughter was known for being difficult. One of Myra's schoolmates described her as being small and dark, bright, intelligent, but of a fierce nature, and would fight anyone, boy or girl, that she quarreled with. Growing up, Myra, sometimes called Belle for her middle name, split her time between attending the prestigious Carthage Female Academy, where all the best families in the county sent their daughters, and entertaining guests in the hotel and tavern her parents owned. Belle was accomplished in all of her school courses, reading, spelling, arithmetic, Greek, Latin, and more. She was the first student in the school's entire history to achieve an acceptable mastery of all the subjects taught. But above all, Belle excelled in music. Her skill on the piano made her a popular entertainer around town at a young age. She performed at everything from weddings to barn dances, and she often played at the tavern her parents owned. Young Belle was no stranger to attention and praise. As Belle grew up, the country around her was falling into turmoil. In December of 1860, when Belle was 12, South Carolina seceded from the Union, starting the country on course for the Civil War. Bell's home state of Missouri would become a hotly contested border state throughout the war. The state recognized both a Union and Confederate government and sent representatives to both the United States Congress and the Confederate Congress. Missouri even sent troops and supplies to support both the Confederate and Union causes at different times. The state's Confederate government did declare secession, but the competing Union government did not. So, technically, Missouri never officially seceded, but many of its residents, including Belle and her family, were intensely pro-Confederacy. A year after the secessions began, in April of 1861, the Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, beginning the Civil War. The first major battle in Missouri occurred in August of the same year in Wilson's Creek, as a contested border state that supported both sides, Missouri saw more bloody battles, including skirmishes between neighbors, than all but two other states. Belle immediately became entangled in the war. Her family's tavern and hotel became a frequent gathering place for Confederate activity, hosting prominent figures like William Clark Quantrill, a guerrilla fighter whose band of marauders would play a major role in Belle's life. Before we delve into Bell's psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. 
Although we don't know much about Belle's childhood, there are two major facets of her young life to talk about. The first is that Belle was a high-achieving child from an affluent household. In some ways, the attention she received could be compared to any child star today, though on a smaller scale. One biographer claimed that, by age 14, everybody within 150 miles of Carthage knew of Belle Shirley. Spending so much time performing and receiving so much praise and admiration may have affected Belle's sense of self and ability to form relationships. In an essay about the impacts of achievement on affluent children, child psychotherapist Frank S. Pittman suggests that children raised in environments that place too much emphasis on their accomplishments often fail to develop strong relationships with others. Essentially, instead of learning that they themselves have value as people, they learn that any affection they receive from others is because of their accomplishments and abilities. The second facet of Belle's life we'd like to talk about is the fact that she grew up during the Civil War. In Grasha Michelle's UN report, The Impact of War on Children, she explained that, quote, war undermines the very foundation of children's lives, destroying their homes, splintering their communities, and breaking down their trust in adults, end quote. It's easy to see how the intelligent, accomplished, but often unruly Belle Shirley might grow up to be a notorious outlaw. Coming of age in a state torn apart by political conflict, where the adults in her life might be killed in battle or by guerrillas at any point, Belle may have found it difficult to trust authority figures. Her experiences as a child could have created a frustrating, unconscious cycle that pushed Belle to seek out infamy, she craved approval and attention, but simultaneously didn't trust the authority figures who were giving it to her. This may explain why Belle tried to make a name for herself outside of social and legal conventions. Revealing a similar passion for praise and admiration, Belle's older brother, Bud, joined their frequent guest, William Clark Quantrill's raiding party around 1862, right as the Civil War picked up. Before we talk about Bell's involvement with Quantrill's raiders, it's worth noting that there are many different stories about this time in Bell's life. Most of them are impossible to substantiate. Some of them are corroborated by various biographers, although many of these biographers base their accounts on the same sources, if not each other's work. Moving forward, we'll do our best to separate fact from fiction. We do know that Belle was 14 or 15 in 1862, at the height of her brother's involvement with Quantrill's raiders. It's often claimed that Belle Shirley spied and scouted for Quantrill and his irregulars. In one story, Belle rode too close to a Union major's camp outside of Carthage, seeking out intel to pass on to her brother Bud. The major recognized her, as he'd grown up with Belle and Bud in Carthage, he took her captive to prevent her from getting any information back to Quantrill. After hours of trying to win the Major's sympathy by taunting him, arguing, and crying, he finally released Belle and sent his own men out to capture her brother before she could make it back. Belle rode off as fast as she could to alert her brother, shortcutting through fields and over fences. When the men arrived to capture Bud Shirley, they found Belle instead, who informed them primely that her brother left a half hour ago, and by then, he may have been a county over. 
A more likely version of this tale is slightly less fanciful. In February 1863, a group of Union militia gathered at the Ritchie Mansion in Carthage, Missouri. A 15-year-old girl stopped by, claiming to be lost. She spent a short amount of time in the mansion before taking off. Shortly thereafter, Quantrill's guerrillas descended upon the mansion, overtaking it. It's believed that Bell pretended to be lost to gain intel, and the raiders then used that information to overtake the mansion. Some writers went so far as to claim that Bell, dressed as a man, rode into battle alongside her brother and Quantrill's raiders. These same accounts have Bell burning the homes of Yankee sympathizers and even killing four men, all before she turned 18. This seems more likely to be an embellishment than actual fact. However, there were two women on record who rode with the guerrillas, so it's not impossible or unprecedented that Bell herself may have secretly been amongst them. Two years after Bell joined Quantrill's raiders, in June of 1864, she had her first brush with personal tragedy. Her brother Bud was having dinner with a local family, and while they were eating, the house was surrounded by Union militia. Bud and his fellow soldier were ambushed. Bud fled, but as he jumped a fence to escape, he was fatally shot. Bell and her parents went to collect his body. Although the details of this encounter vary, one aspect is consistent. Heartbroken and angry, 16-year-old Bell promised to get revenge on the Blue Belly who shot her brother. Some accounts also claim that Bell promised to marry the man who killed her brother's murderer if she couldn't do it herself. According to a study by Arlene M. Stilwell, the pursuit of revenge is related to something called equity theory. Stillwell posits that revenge is motivated by the intent of maintaining equity in a relationship. Basically, when one party is wronged, as Bell felt after her brother was killed, they enact revenge to cause the same pain that was enacted upon them. It's a pretty intuitive, straightforward concept. What's interesting in Bell's case is that her brother was killed in service of the Confederacy, but instead of viewing Bud's death as a sacrifice for their cause, Bell took it as a personal affront. She saw herself as the victim in the situation, and she was out for revenge. Up next, we'll follow Bell's first brushes with crime. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. In April of 1865, General Lee surrendered the Confederate Army, marking the end of the Civil War. The war was over, but Belle Shirley was still after revenge for her brother's death just a year before. Not long after the war ended, the Shirleys relocated from Missouri to a town called Syene, just outside of Dallas, Texas. 
At that time, Dallas had less than 2,000 residents. Bell attended the one-room community school in Syene, but having already mastered the offerings at her prestigious Carthage Academy, she looked down on her less educated classmates. She quickly got a reputation for having a scathing tongue and quick temper, and was considered wild by many of the locals. This reputation for being prickly and quick to anger would follow her throughout her life, as would the disapproval of her neighbors. Soon, though, Belle had something to focus on other than her studies, her first marriage. On February 13, 1866, some defectors from Quantrill's guerrillas, the group Belle's brother had died in the service of, rode into Liberty, Missouri. They looted the Savings Association of gold coins and savings bonds. As they fled, firing wildly at their pursuers, they killed a 17-year-old college student. This gang of robbers included Frank and Jesse James, Cole Younger, and possibly Jim Reed. They became known as the James Younger Gang. It's important to note that at this time, especially in Texas, where sympathies for the South ran deep, although these bandits were definitely criminals, they were still respected and admired for their reputations as former soldiers. So it isn't unusual that on their way back from the robbery, the group stopped at the Shirley residence in Syene, Texas. The Youngers, the Reeds, and the Shirleys were friends from Missouri, and Bell had crossed paths with them before. From this point on, there are two very separate accounts of Bell's life. One is the dangerous, romantic, adventuresome tale you'd expect of a woman monikered the bandit queen. The other is, well, more mundane. Biographers and historians differ greatly on which version of Bell's life is the truth. We'll continue to do our best to clarify fact from fiction. But before we get into it, we want to discuss what might be behind the embellishments so many writers have made in their accounts of Bell's life. Almost all of the accounts of Bell Starr's life, from the most extensively researched biographies to the most dubious newspaper articles of the day, were written by men. In most of them, we see two distinct sides of Bell emerge over and over again, emphasized almost in equal parts. There's the bell that encapsulates traditional womanhood, the feminine accomplishments, the enduring love, the devoted motherhood. And there's the wild, unruly, romantic woman who was rumored to have seduced almost every man she encountered. This dichotomy would be reflective of something Sigmund Freud referred to as the Madonna whore complex. Essentially, it's the idea that some men can't reconcile their sexual expectations of women with their culturally reinforced need for a woman to be pure. Though many of Freud's ideas are considered antiquated today, in a 2009 paper in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, one psychologist points out that this issue is still commonly encountered in our culture in modern times. By making Belle into both a dashing, dangerous bandit queen and a well-bred, accomplished Southern Belle, the men writing these accounts may have subconsciously been seeking this pinnacle of imagined womanhood that can't possibly exist in the real world. But despite some questionable accounts of her life, Belle did exist. And one thing we can say for certain about her is that in 1866, she married Jim Reed. Some biographers claim that Jim Reed was a definite member of the James Younger gang, although others disagree. 
We do know that he was indeed a Confederate guerrilla during the Civil War, like the other members of the gang. In one version of events, mostly culled from family accounts, Bell's parents strongly opposed her association with a presumed criminal like Reed. But Bell was headstrong and in love. So within 24 hours of his arrival in Syene, she rode out with Reed and was married on horseback by a justice of the peace. That 24-hour marriage gave rise to two separate rumors. The first was that Bell had indeed vowed to marry whoever killed her brother's murderer, and Jim Reed succeeded shortly before arriving in Texas. The second rumor was that Bell was pregnant at the time of her marriage with Cole Younger's child. Cole Younger had known the Shirley family in Missouri, and he had ridden alongside Bell's brother Bud in Quantrill's group of raiders, so he was well acquainted with both Bell and the Shirley family. Younger had a reputation for being a bit of a rake. He refused to marry her, forcing her to wed Jim Reed to avoid disgracing herself. We can't prove or disprove the theory that Jim Reed killed Bell's brother's murderer, thereby securing her hand and heart. It's a good story, but it might not be any more than that. We can speak more definitively on the second rumor. The rumor came from the fact that Bell's daughter, Pearl, went by the name Pearl Younger for most of her life. But she most likely took the name from Bell's later husband, Cole's cousin, Bruce Younger. Cole Younger himself denied the rumor in 1903. He confirmed that he knew the Shirleys had visited their farm in Syene, but he called any romantic relationship between himself and Belle a fairy tale. Whatever the reason, most of these accounts insist that Belle and Jim Reed were married, and her parents refused to acknowledge their horseback Justice of the Peace wedding as a legal ceremony. Belle ended up in a constant tug of war between her husband and her parents. However, there's another competing narrative to consider. There's documentation that Belle Shirley and Jim Reed were married in Collins County on November 1st, 1866, by a reverend, not by a justice of the peace on horseback. This version of events maintains that Jim Reed, at least at this time, was respectable and upright, from a good family, and had a good relationship with the Shirleys. After their marriage, Jim and Belle moved on to the Shirley's family's farm, where Jim Reed helped work the land. No matter how their marriage happened or how the Shirleys felt about it, Belle and Reed's first daughter, named Rosie Lee Reed, was born two years later in September of 1868. Belle adored their daughter so completely that she referred to Rosie as her Pearl, and the nickname stuck. Other than Pearl's birth, however, there isn't much documentation of Belle's life at this time. Many biographers claim that Belle returned to her roots, becoming an entertainer at saloons in nearby Dallas. Some accounts say that she often rode 10 miles back from Dallas to Syene late at night. She started carrying two pistols around her waist for protection. Paired with the fact that she rode side saddle in a fashionable black velvet dress, she cut a striking figure. It's also said that she ran her own livery stable in Dallas, which ended up being fairly successful. At the same time, her husband, Jim Reed, was said to be involved with the Star Horse Thief Gang. If Reed was stealing horses, and Belle was selling horses, it follows that some of her inventory may have been of questionable ownership. 
As with every time Belle settled into a new place, some of the locals objected to her unusual, independent lifestyle. One story gives an excellent snapshot of Belle's sense of humor and of her somewhat violent reactions to anyone questioning her way of life. A prominent doctor in Dallas had been complaining about Belle spending so much time entertaining in saloons, a space typically reserved for men. When Belle encountered the doctor on the street, she rode up to him and forced him out of his buggy at gunpoint. Belle told the doctor to lift his horse's tail and kiss what he saw. At the wrong end of Belle's pistol, he had no choice but to do what she said. After he'd done it, Belle told him, quote, The next time you have complaints about me or my lifestyle, doctor, make them to me, end quote. Belle in her velvet dress, wielding two pistols, mortifying anybody who might question her in the street, is an incredible image. But not everybody agrees on its veracity. A conflicting account claims that, far from carousing in Dallas saloons and selling stolen horses, Belle actually returned to Missouri, where she and her daughter Pearl lived with Jim Reed's mother. Reed himself was rarely home and spent most of his time racing horses and gambling in Fort Smith, Arkansas. All accounts of Belle's life agree, however, that in 1869, Jim Reed became a wanted criminal. After killing a man who murdered his brother near Fort Smith, Jim Reed fled and took his family from either Texas or Missouri to live in California. According to letters Bell wrote to Reed's family, this was a happy time for the Reed family. They had a new baby, a plot of land, and plans to grow an orchard and a vineyard. It's difficult to imagine the gunslinging, rabble-rousing image of Bell painted by some biographers being happy hiding away on a farm, raising her children. It really is. By some accounts, she was theatrical, attention-seeking, and a little bit mean. By others, she lived in the country in relative isolation and peace. Most likely, the reality of Bell's life falls somewhere in between. Whatever the truth was, the Reed's California paradise didn't last long. Coming up, we'll look at the wild rumors that began to circle Bell Star. Now, back to the story. Somewhere between 1871 and 1872, Bell's husband, Jim Reed, was recognized by local law enforcement. He was still wanted for the murder he committed in Fort Smith a few years earlier. Fearing prosecution, Reed took Bell and their two young children on the run once more. In 1872, the Reed family arrived back in Texas. They convinced Bell's parents to give them a piece of their farm to live on, but Reed was still a wanted man with a price on his head and increasingly recognizable. He spent most of his time in Indian Territory, in modern-day Oklahoma, where he could escape U.S. jurisdiction, only riding out to see Bell for secret rendezvous. And also, of course, to sneak whiskey into Indian Territory, where alcohol had been banned by a congressional law in 1832. The smuggling only upped the price on his head. On the other hand, some accounts claim that Bell wholeheartedly disapproved of Jim Reed's criminal behavior, and at this point, she left him and moved to Texas on her own. There's no way to know for sure, but the takeaway is the same. Bell spent most of her time in Texas, and she and her husband were effectively separated. 
Between 1872 and 1873, Bell may have returned to her old livery stable business in Dallas. Many believed that she rode into Indian territory not just to meet with her outlaw husband, but to parlay with infamous horse thieves Tom and Sam Starr. If Bell was known to be selling stolen horses and was also married to a murderer on the run from the law, it's a bit odd that she was never picked up by law enforcement. Despite constantly being present around robberies and murders, she wasn't directly accused of any crimes until 1873. That year, three men descended upon the house of Walt Grayson, a wealthy Creek Indian who lived not far from Little Rock, Arkansas. The masked robbers tied ropes around the necks of Grayson and his wife, threatening to hang them if they didn't reveal where their money was hidden. Jim Reed was quickly named as one of the assailants. This was probably because he was a known robber with a very run-of-the-mill physical description. Brown hair, facial hair, and a prominent nose. Speculation about the identity of the other two robbers varied, including some rumors that Bell, dressed as a man, was one of them. Maybe this story came from the rumors that Bell had dressed as a man to ride into battle during the Civil War. Or maybe it was just that her independence, sharp tongue, unusual dress, and fondness for her two pistols got under people's skin, so they loved to paint her as a criminal whenever possible. Whatever started the rumors, suspicion that Bell had dressed as a man to help her husband carry out the robbery began to spread. A few years later, Bell was called to testify, and she told the court that although Reed and his cohorts had told her about their plan to rob Grayson, they left her in the woods before they committed the actual act, and only returned for her afterwards. She claimed that despite her knowledge of the crime, she never saw a penny of the money personally. The simplest solution is often the truth, so it seems more likely that it was indeed three men robbing Grayson, rather than two men and Belle dressed as one. Still, there she is, again, at the center of the action with a seriously flimsy alibi. That wasn't the only time the local rumor mill fingered Bell for a robbery. On April 7, 1874, a year after the Grayson robbery, Jim Reed once again found himself on the wrong side of the law. He was recognized as one of the leaders of the gang that held up a San Antonio mail coach. This robbery earned Reed a $7,000 price on his head, forcing him deeper into hiding. Some believed that Bell again dressed as a man to participate in this robbery. There is some interesting evidence that simultaneously supports and refutes that theory. One account claims that Bell was so disapproving of Reed's criminal lifestyle that she left him entirely long before the robbery. He, in turn, ran away with a girl named Rosa McComas and swept her away to San Antonio. A woman named Rosa McComas was, in fact, questioned and temporarily detained in regards to the robbery, but ultimately released. While at first glance, this seems like firm evidence that Bell wasn't involved, biographer Burton Rasco makes the case that Bell was much more involved than it seemed. A girl named Rosa McComas, not McComas, went to school with Bell in Syene. Bell disliked Rosa. And so when she got into legal trouble, she used Rosa's name as an alias. If that were true, it would mean it was Belle, not Rosa, who was questioned in San Antonio at the time of the robbery. The idea that Belle ran across the country to Texas, helped Reed rob a mail train, and then gave the police an assumed identity 
seems a little far-fetched. Still, in the parts of her life that we can prove, we know Belle to have been attention-seeking, impulsive, and prone to putting herself in dangerous situations. So it isn't entirely out of character. That's true. It can't have been a coincidence that Belle kept surrounding herself with dangerous figures. First, her brother and his band of Confederate raiders. Later, the James Younger gang and possibly her own husband's robberies. As we mentioned earlier, Bell's experiences growing up as the center of attention and growing up during the Civil War may have made it difficult for her to form secure, lasting attachments to other people. A study published in the 2009 International Journal of Psychological and Behavioral Sciences found that people who struggle with closeness and intimacy are significantly more likely to engage in high-risk, dangerous activities. We can't definitively prove whether or not Belle committed most of the crimes she was accused of throughout her life. But if it truly were a pattern of behavior, it would make sense, given her upbringing and personality. Not long after the San Antonio robbery in April 1874, Jim Reed paid a visit to a friend and distant relative, John Morris, in McKinney, Texas. Rosa McComas, whoever she was, was known to be staying with Morris after being released from police custody. Local detectives believed Reed would follow, and so Morris's house was already under surveillance. According to an account of the events by the Dallas Herald, the detectives planned to grab Reed in the morning, but got impatient. They tried to move on him at night, but neglected to warn the local residents of their plan. A miscommunication led to shots fired. Two of the detectives were wounded. Reed was camped a small distance from the house, and having heard the scuffle, he took off. Reed roamed between Texas and Indian Territory, committing a streak of robberies throughout the area. On August 9, 1874, several months after the incident at Morris's house, Reed ran into Morris once again. Morris tried to convince Reed to turn himself in peacefully. Some accounts claim that Morris was just trying to do what was right, but others point to the fact that Reed had a several thousand dollar bounty on his head, which Morris would receive if he brought him in, dead or alive. Whatever the reason, when Reed tried to escape, Morris shot him. Reed tried to retaliate and fearing for his life, Morris shot him again. Jim Reed died. One account of the aftermath claims that when Morris brought Reed in to claim the reward money, Bell was brought in to identify the body. Despite Morris for his betrayal, Bell said, quote, If you want the reward for Jim Reed, you'll have to kill Jim Reed. This is not my husband. End quote. While that's a great story, records show that Morris was indeed paid the reward money he was owed for killing Jim Reed. When Bell was called in to identify the body, she claimed she was sick and didn't make the trip. Unfortunately for Belle, her husband's death didn't make life any easier for her. The gossip mill continued to churn. Concerned citizens in Dallas and Syene began writing letters to convince local officials to force Belle out of the area. One such letter, written to the governor in March of 1875, referred to Syene as, quote, the home of the widow and family of James Reed, the San Antonio mail robber, his widow being no less celebrated in such exploits than her notorious paramour, end quote. Throughout the rest of the letter, the concerned neighbors asked for permission to take the law into their own hands in getting rid of Bell. 
Bell didn't take this sitting down. In another letter, a neighbor claimed that when confronted about her unsavory reputation, Bell said that she has 25 men who will do her bidding and annihilate Syene if necessary. That doesn't exactly make her sound like the innocent small-town mother some sources make her out to be. No, it doesn't. The content of these stories seems almost too outrageous to be believed, but the sheer amount of them and her constant provable links to notorious criminals make it equally difficult for me to believe there's no truth to them at all. True or not, the gossip impacted Bell's life. On April 28, 1875, Bell was indicted by a grand jury in Dallas for setting a store on fire. She had previously threatened the store's owner on several occasions. Bell's bail was set at $2,500, which is around $55,000 today. Even the local newspaper noted that this figure was inflated for a crime of this type. That same year, on August 12th, a grand jury charged Bell with stealing a horse. This doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility, due to Bell's proven and rumored connections with various horse thieves over the years. After a lifetime around notorious murderers and thieves, these two indictments were Bell's first brushes with law enforcement. The indictments happened in relatively quick succession after the town openly turned on her, so it seems likely that public opinion impacted her legal problems. Without any substantial evidence to support them, both charges were eventually dropped. Despite escaping two convictions, Bell ultimately succumbed to the pressure of her neighbors and left Texas in 1876. Perhaps tired of the legal system that had plagued her, directly and indirectly throughout her life, Bell moved to Indian Territory, right on the border of what is now Oklahoma and Arkansas. Treaties had given the Cherokee Nation the right to set up their own legal system within the Indian Territory, separate from the federal government that governed the rest of the country. The enforcement of their laws applied only to Native Americans, or disputes between Native Americans and white men. The federal or state governments could technically pursue and prosecute white criminals who were hiding out in Indian Territory, but this rarely happened, so the region became a hub for outlaws. Bell settled in the Indian Territory near Fort Smith, Arkansas, an area rife with crime and violence. If she really was the bandit some accounts have made her out to be, she would have felt right at home. Unfortunately, the region was about to change in 1876, right around the time Bell arrived. The Honorable Isaac C. Parker was appointed by the Federal Court of Arkansas to bring order to what was very much the Wild West. Over the next 21 years, Parker convicted and hanged so many criminals that he became known as the Hanging Judge. His gallows were called the Gates of Hell. Bell, who had been chased out of Texas for her wild, criminal reputation, arrived right as Judge Parker began his cleanup effort. She thought she would be safe here, but the danger was just getting started. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll talk about Bell's second, third, and fourth marriages, her rise to national notoriety, and her murder, which to this day has never been solved. 
You can find more female criminals and all of Parcast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Castbox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show, and if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Join us next Wednesday as we continue to explore the life and legend of Bell Star. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden, Aidan Connolly, and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Alyssa Thorne and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 